Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Mike Yoram on Parashat Yitro. The Pardes Learning Seminar will be in Jerusalem this summer, July 3rd to 7th, 2022. This year's topic, In Praise of Doing Nothing, Shabbat and Shemitah in the Modern World, is your chance to study with some of Pardes' finest and excellent faculty members. For more details, please visit pardes.org.il forward slash seminar. And now, here is Rabbi Mike Yoram. What do you do when you come across a concept in the Torah that seems out of date or irrelevant to today in contemporary life? This week's Parsha, Parsha Yitro, provides a great case study for how to deal with this. The very first of the Aserta de Bro, the Ten Commandments, prohibits the worship of idols. And this does not seem, in a contemporary standpoint, like a major pressing issue today. Perhaps it is the success of monotheism in and of itself, but we are not concerned or worried about people being drawn to worshiping statues or fashioning images of God that would transgress this law. Over the next few minutes, we're going to look in four different modalities. First, we're going to look at the original sources in the Torah in this week's Torah portion that lay out this prohibition. Second, we'll explore why the rabbi saw Avodah Zarah and idol worship as such a dangerous and alluring temptation. Third, we'll try to develop and land on a more contemporary definition that might breathe new life into this concept and make it a more relevant and powerful idea for today. And finally, we'll explore some of the classical connections that Chazal, our sages, made between concepts of idolatry and issues that might be relevant in our lives today. We begin in Parshat Yitro again with the very first of the Aserta Dibro, the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 23 through 6. It begins, Lo lecha Elohim acherim al panai. You shall have no other gods beside me or no other gods in front of me, in front of my face. Verse 4, That you shall make no uh, sculptured image or likeness similar to what's in heaven or on earth below or in the waters underneath the earth. So this is the core prohibition against the worship of idols. In verses 5 and 6, the Torah lays out very strict punishments. Uh, for this a transgression of this sort. We also see this in Exodus 20, verse 20, where it adds a new layer of what an idol may be, where it specifically mentions that we cannot make false gods out of silver or out of gold. So it adds the addition here of precious metal. Now, again, we haven't really defined what Avodah Zarah and idolatry could mean in a modern sense, but let's look at some of the classical commentators and why they think that this is so prominently placed in the Torah portion. So Rashi on this verse, uh, you can see this in source three, he is picking up on the word al-panai. Why couldn't the Torah just say lo don't have any other gods? Why is there this superfluous extra two words of al-panai? And in classic Rashi form, it means that there's something that has to be uncovered. And Rashi says, kolzman sheni kayam. What is the meaning of this extra word, Alpanai? It means, for all time where I exist, it, in theory, this commandment against idolatry also exists. 
Shilo Tomar lo nitztavu al avodazara ela otohador. And he's quoting from the Mechelta here, a Tanaitic Midrash, where it says, the whole purpose of this additional implication here is so that no one could ever say that the prohibition against Avodazara and idolatry was only for the generation of the desert and that it didn't continue on into perpetual generations to come. And what's very interesting here, I think, is we can assume that there is not a law on the books uh, that prohibits something that wasn't there, that wasn't common and powerful and alluring. And it hints to the idea that the rabbis understood that idolatry is not something that you ever get over, that you ever solve, that ever becomes an outdated concept. Idolatry is so powerful that it just reinvents itself in each situation and each generation. And essentially what that implies is that the allure of worshiping false things is a core human attribute. And it's always, always poses a risk to us. Ibn Ezra and uh, Rambam, uh, Nachmanides, sources four and five, they take a slightly different stance than Rashi does. They're not reading uh, Al-Panai as implying that this is a commandment forever. They're actually focused much more on the fact that Al-Panai means that God is always there and present. Therefore, there's something particularly offensive about worshiping a false god when you should know that the real god is always there, present, and watching. Now again, this may seem like an out-of-date concept if you don't connect to God as a supernatural being or as an anthropomorphic being, as a, as a, a god that uh, exhibits human qualities. But even if you don't relate to God in that way, there's a hint here of something more deep and perhaps something more contemporary, and it starts to hint at what a definition might be. And so just to hint at it now, I would like to say that perhaps the issue here is that there's a particular kind of danger, a particularly kind of offensive danger, when you are seduced by something false, when something real is right in front of us. We'll come back to that idea a little bit later as we dig in. The final concept here that I want to bring uh, before we go on to the next segment is perhaps the most complicated and interesting, and it comes from the Ora Chaim, who is Chaim Ibn Attar, and he was born in Morocco and died in Jerusalem and lived in from 1696 to 1743. And this is again a step before we develop a contemporary definition of Avodah Zarah, but he says here in a really interesting way that there is a connection between thinking and reality. And you can read the specifics in the source, again, source six, but the core idea here is that just by thinking and imagining a new type of God, that it inadvertently has the power to invent or manifest this false God. And so when the Torah says lo yeh in the singular, but ends the sentence in the plural with Elohim Achirim, which is confusing. The grammar doesn't add up. The Or Chaim takes us to mean that the minute we begin to adopt and think about false deities, that they become real, that they become attractive to us, and that even if it's inadvertent, it's very hard to go back to a world where you can worship just one thing. It's almost the idea of all of these possibilities now takes on a life of its own. Now again, this may seem at first glance a little bit uh, far out there, but if you think about it, 
Think about in our own lives when there is a temptation or a habit or some kind of impulsive behavior, even a, a recurring thought that we get stuck in. Once we go down that road, it is not inconceivable to imagine how that thought or impulse or emotion can grow stronger and stronger. It can start to feel like it is out of control. And this thing, which may not be real and may not even be important, can start to exert tremendous power over our lives. And so again, the idea of imagining Avodazara and idol worship as worshiping statues may not feel particularly resonant today. But when we start to imagine idolatry framed as something more metaphorical, all of a sudden we can see that this becomes a more meaningful category that has relevance for contemporary life. So now let's play a little bit with the contemporary meaning of this. And I want to do this out of historical order and do it in the order that I came across these modern Jewish thinkers. Because again, for me, the, the stumbling block here was there's so much in Jewish tradition and in, in Jewish texts spent on fear, the desire to uproot, the desire to destroy idolatry, and yet it didn't seem like a particularly relevant or meaningful concept until I came across Yeshua Leibovitch, who is a modern Jewish thinker who lived in Jerusalem. He died in 1994, and he is controversial, and the text that I'm bringing you today is controversial as well. I'm not going to treat the two pieces of the text that are controversial. I just want to use it as a jumping off point for a contemporary definition of idolatry. So in his essay from 1975, The Uniqueness of the Jewish People, he writes, The uniqueness of the Jewish people is a direction and a target. Were it a reality, it would have no value. The people of Israel were not chosen, were not the chosen people, but were commanded to be the chosen people. He's playing with this idea here that chosenness or holiness is not a status quo. It's not even a status that we have. It's something aspirational. And the meaning of it comes from the commandedness and from the performance of certain actions, not simply by being given the status. He continues to say, the Jewish people has no intrinsic uniqueness, or you could, you could use the word holiness. Its uniqueness, rather, consists of the demand laid upon it. The only thing that makes the Jewish people special are the unique and special demands that we have to live up to. And he points out that we may or may not heed these demands. Therefore, this is not a status or a fate that is guaranteed. Now he draws the connection between this idea related to the people of Israel to the land of Israel. What has been said about the holiness of the people, you can see he uses holiness and uniqueness almost interchangeably here, is also valid with regard to the holiness of the land. Exalting the land itself to the rank of holiness is idolatry par excellence, is a quintessential example of idolatry. So the, again, there are two ideas here that are very controversial that we're not going to deal with. One is about the chosenness or uniqueness of the Jewish people, what Leibovitch means and what that means in Jewish tradition. We're going to set that aside for the moment. What he's building to here is really saying that when we infuse the land of Israel with more meaning than it deserves, when the value of the land of Israel supersedes all other religious, ethical, philosophical, cultural, historical values, that now that focus on the land has become perverted and has descended into a kind of idol worship. Again, this is also probably 
for some of our listeners, a controversial idea. Uh, there's lots more in Yeshua Leibovitch that is controversial as well. But in, in stumbling into this political difficulty, he's also giving us an incredibly powerful and useful definition for what idolatry can mean in the modern age. And I think a simple way to say that, to paraphrase Yeshua Leibovitch, is that an idol was never about the statue or the image uh, that we read about so often in classic Jewish texts. The thing that re- that's just how it was manifest at a certain period in time. But what undergirds that is the idea that idolatry is the moment that we infuse something with more meaning than it deserves. Just meditate on that for a second. Idolatry or an idol is anything that we infuse with more meaning than it deserves. So why are there examples of statues and images in the Torah? Because those were things that were common traps back then. But it wasn't the fact that it was a statue or an image. The fact was, is that people were pretending or or confusing those objects with God. Um, And so it was infusing the statue or the image with more meaning than it deserves. And my guess is already your mind can start to wander to all of the things in contemporary life that we maybe infuse with more meaning than they deserve in ways that are not helpful to our own spiritual, ethical, mental health, um, and they can often lead us astray. The second definition I want to add is from Franz Rosenzweig, the German philosopher who lived from 1886 to 1929. And here he expands it in a very powerful way. He said, names change. But polytheism continues. You can read polytheism and idolatry here. Um, Culture, civilization, people, state, nation, race, art, science, economy, class. It's a huge list. He just offers all of these things can take on the aspect of idol worship. Um, And he says that this is just an abbreviated and incomplete list of the pantheon of our contemporary gods. He's riffing on the same frequency that Leibovitch was. Again, he came earlier. It's not that he read Leibovitch, but this idea that these things in contemporary life, like culture, civilization, people, state, nation, that we are infusing them with more meaning than they deserve. Um, And in this way, it becomes an idol. And you can imagine very easily um, when we use culture or politics Uh, Not to bring people together, not to enrich our lives, but we do it in a way to embarrass people, to create hierarchy, to see ourselves as better than. um, That already is a form of idolatry here, according to Rosenzweig and Leibovitch. So he finishes that no idolater, this may not be true, but a very hyperbolic statement, no idolater has ever worshipped his idols with greater devotion and faith than that is displayed by modern man towards his gods. Again, he's saying that if you were to think that idolatry is an outmoded concept, uh, you would be wrong. That the idols of contemporary life in Germany in the late 1800s and early 1900s was just as powerful as it was at the time of the Torah or of Rashi or of anyone else in Jewish tradition. And so now we have this broader definition. When the Torah is concerned about idolatry, when the rabbinic literature talks of Avodah Zarah and and idolatry and the worship of idols, um, yes, in their time, they may have been talking about particular examples, but underneath it, we can ask ourselves, what's really going on here is what are the things around us today 
that are infused with more meaning than they deserve, things that we end up inadvertently worshiping and that distract us and confuse us and take us off track in ways that hurt our lives, that make us not who we want to be. It's interesting that in the Shema prayer, it says that if we go and are seduced to worship other gods, that we'll be kicked out of the good land. And again, metaphorically, what this means is it's not just the land of Israel, but it's this it's a space in life where we can live in some idealistic or ideal or utopian uh, way of living. And that by being distracted and infusing these false things with more meaning than they deserve, it runs the risk of uh, weakening, destroying, diminishing our lives so that we are no longer in this metaphorical uh, good land. With this contemporary definition laid out, I want to share with you a few examples of of where Chazal and the Jewish sages and Jewish tradition also draw out notions of idolatry that are broader than we might have thought and how they relate to modern life. Now, there are a number of places where Chazal brings other examples of ways that idolatry can be reinterpreted. There's even things connected in this week's Parsha. But for the sake of time, I just want to focus on three quick sources and I'll leave the other sources in the larger source sheet if you want to continue to look and to try to decipher what's there. But the first source that I want to call your attention to is from Hosea 14.4. And the reason I wanted to bring it up is lest we think that this idea of expanding the definition of idol worship and avodazar to be something that only contemporary rabbis and modern Jewish thinkers saw, even here in a later prophetic text in the Tanakh, we see this kind of metaphorical idea of what it means to worship an idol. And the text says, Assyria shall not save us. No more will we ride on steeds, nor ever again will we call our handiwork our God. And that's the essential piece here. In other words, already there's a notion that that the work of our hands could be compared to a God. And that might mean emphasizing the power and unique meaning of human ingenuity in a way that denies the mysterious aspect and role that God plays in human ingenuity and creativity. But it also might mean that the the bounty that we create through our work, whether it's monetary or agricultural, that we begin to be slaves and worship that money, that achievement, or that bounty rather than something deeper and more real and outside ourselves like a true God. We also see this um, in perhaps one of the the weirdest sources um, that I want to bring everyone's attention to, which is from the Midrash Tanhuma, and it is um, source 11 in your packet. And if you read this at first, you're going to say, what in the heck are we talking about? But if you look a little deeper, it, it, it becomes clear. So just hang with me for a sec. But this is asking here, Lama Nikra'u Terafim. The Midrash Tanhuma source is a little strange, but if you hang with me, you'll see how quickly and meaningfully it relates to the idea of idolatry. Again, this is extending a metaphor from a classical text. And the Midrash begins by asking, Lama Nikra'u Terafim. Why are these idols that existed being called Terafim? And the first answer is toref. They were made from things that were toref, filth, um, things that were works of uncleanness. 
Now here's where it gets strange, but also interesting. It goes on to how are these idols constructed? They would take a firstborn male child, a young person, kill him, sprinkle him with salt and spices to preserve the, the youth. And then they would write a demon's name on a gold tablet. They'd place this under the tongue. This is turning it into some kind of amulet, right? But the last sentence here in the source in English is where I think it's important here. They would then take this head and stick it up into the recess on a wall and light candles before it or all around it. So again, this is a little bit uh, morbid and a little bit strange, but if you dig just a touch deeper, what is this doing? This is taking youth and beauty, trying to preserve it, and then essentially sticking it up onto a large wall lit up for all to see. And the Midrash continues, I didn't include it in the source sheet, to say that people would come and bow down to it. So again, at first thought, you're like, what is this talking about? But on second thought, what it reminds me of is a billboard with, with a model that overly privileges youth and beauty that while we may not bow down and pray to it in a literal sense, it is a common thing in our society where youth and beauty is celebrated, uh, where it has become a kind of idol, where people are willing to go to tremendous lengths um, to preserve their youth and beauty, where society undermines and undervalues the contributions that older and less beautiful people can make to the society. And this is a, a kind of a votazara, a kind of idolatry that has a very negative impact on a lot of people in our society, different ages. It shows up uh, for women in a certain way. It shows up for men in a different way. It shows up for young people in a certain way and older folks in a different way. But again, idolatry is not just the worship of statues. When we infuse youth and beauty in a kind of perfection uh, with more meaning than it deserves, it has this negative effect on us. If you go up a source to source 10, um, the Akedat Yitzchak, this is Rabbi Isaac ben Moshe Arama, who was born in Spain in 1420 and died in 1494. Here he talks again about a very common uh, type of idolatry, which is virulent and powerful today. And he says it is the accumulation of wealth and the achievement of worldly success. And he even quotes Job uh, as, a, as a counter proof to how we should be living. But if you've ever spent any time around young people who are struggling to get into elite colleges or to get into elite jobs, um, sometimes that hard work is wonderful. And, and I don't think anyone is afraid of hard work and working for meaningful things. But there's a point at which you can start to see young people disconnect from their core identity and from who they want to be and what they want to do, where they become almost robotic of focusing only on achievement. Um, to the exclusion of real growth. And I heard someone say recently that perfection is an outdated concept that people who want perfection are people who are afraid of growing and changing. So again, there's a kind of a votazar, a kind of idol worship that occurs, I think, when we focus on material success. So again, my, my guess is that if you think about this, you start to realize that there are many, many things in our society that are pulling on us in negative ways that are really a form of idolatry. And all of a sudden, it doesn't seem like such an arbitrary or outdated choice to begin the Ten Commandments, the Aserta de Brot, with a prohibition against being seduced by false gods. And so whatever it is in, our, in your life and in our lives that are directing us away 
from the things that make us the best versions of ourselves, from the things that build us the kind of life and the kind of family and the kind of community that we want and cherish. Um, this week's Torah portion, Parshat Yitro, offers us a value that we can keep coming back to, that when we feel ourselves being drawn to worship things that are false and to ignore the things in front of us that are true, that we should know that this is part of many generations of struggle. It is part of the human condition and that we are have a gift to be part of the story so that we don't have to start from scratch to find our own wisdom, but we can build on the wisdom of our ancestors to try to continually grow stronger in our ability to focus on what really matters the most. So I wish you a healthy week. I wish you a week uh, of focus on the most important, most real, and most rewarding things in your lives, and look forward to learning Torah with you again in the future. Thank you. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. You can follow us on Spotify or by visiting elmod.pardes.org for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Be sure to join us next week as Rabbi Alex Israel discusses Parashat Mishpatim. Thanks for listening.